Hey everyone, it's Joe here from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. I'm in Cowes at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation headquarters and I'm delighted to introduce you to this new series on an introduction to the circular economy. Over the course of the next few episodes, we're going to try and give you a basic understanding of the circular economy. We're going to look at who's doing it, what are the examples of a circular economy in action around the world, and importantly, we're going to look at what it might mean for you. What can you do with this new knowledge or awareness of the circular economy? And when we were thinking about who might be a good person to join us as we explore these different topics, there was no one better than Ellen MacArthur, who, if you haven't guessed yet, is the founder of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So I sat down with Ellen, we had a long discussion, and we've broken it up into a few different parts. And what you're about to hear is part one of the conversation. And in part one, we find out what the circular economy means to Ellen. Why did she come to investigate this topic? What have been some of the things that have surprised or shocked her along the way? And why now? Why is this new model for an economy changing the way that we make and use things? Why is it taken off now? So enjoy part one. There'll be more parts to follow, as I said. So I'll be back at the end after the conversation with Ellen to tell you more about what to expect in those upcoming parts. But for now, here's Ellen. We're here today to talk about the circular economy. What do you think the most simple way to describe the concept is? I always think that the simplest way to kind of get the circular economy is to think about the difference between a line, literally a straight line, and a circle. And when we talk about how we use stuff, you know, materials, things, metals, plastics in our economy today, we use stuff up. Eventually it falls off the end of that line, it becomes waste, it becomes rubbish, it falls off the end of, a, of its useful kind of platform. If you turn that line into a circle, then you think of everything that goes into the economy, stuff, food, metal, plastic, everything, goes around in a circle. And it keeps going around in a circle. So the materials can be fed back into the system, food waste gets broken down and turned into fertiliser, you know, metals get recycled and put into the next products. It's all about a system, a straight line shifting to a circle. We've achieved a lot. We have homes to live in cars or transport to move us around, um, we eat food to eat, electronics and wonderful gadgets and things like that. Mm. So what's the, what's the problem? Why, do, why does that need to change? Well, I think part of the point is actually many people in the world don't have that. You know, we do. We live in the Western world. We're incredibly lucky to have access to all of this equipment. But actually, there are billions of people in the world who really don't have that, who don't have transport, who don't have clean water, who have many, many challenges every day just to survive. If we're going to have everybody... Um, emerge from the emerging you know, markets and, and developing countries and have access to what we do, then we're going to have to operate in a different way because all those things we have access to need materials, they need energy, and they need to sit within a system of some description, even if that system is linear. When those people come out of uh, well, the, three, the new three billion middle-class consumers that are going to enter the marketplace over the next few decades, you know, if they're going to have access to what we have, we're going to have to provide that in a different way. We're going to have to use the materials more intelligently. We're going to have to be incredibly careful with how we recover biological material to regenerate farmland and be able to build restorative systems rather than kind of eking out our farmland a little bit longer, which is what we're doing today. So how did you come to discover this circular economy and begin working on it? Well, for me, I never, ever thought I would do this. My previous life was racing boats around the world, generally on my own and generally non-stop. And it was my dream job. 
it's all I'd ever wanted to do from the age of four. But when you set off on one of those journeys, one of those trips, you get everything you need for your survival on the boat, the minimum, because you have to be light. And then when you leave for that three month journey, you manage what you have down to the last drop of diesel and the last packet of food. You know, you watch every single bag of food go down. You watch that diesel go down every single day that you need to charge the batteries. You just know that what you have is all you have and there is no more. And you feel that when you're two and a half thousand miles away from the nearest town, you're in the middle of the Southern Ocean. If help needs to get to you, it's five days to get a ship to you. And then if they can get you off the boat, it's five days to get you back into a city. So actually you are incredibly remote. And it taught me what finite meant. It taught me the definition of the word finite. And I never really translated that to anything outside of sailing because sailing was a different world and it's what I did at sea and you go and it's a, it's a completely different experience. And then it kind of dawned on me that, you know, what's the difference between using things up on the boat and using them up in our global economy? The way the economy functions uses stuff up. And to begin with, I thought, you know, someone had the answer. It's obviously a big challenge. There must be an answer out there. But so much of the conversation that was going on back in 2006, 7, 8, when I was researching this, was about using less and traveling less and doing less. And everything seemed really reductive. Um, and, you know, yes, you can make something using less material. You can make something losing, using less energy. But ultimately, if you're still using those materials up, then the economy is never going to run in the long term, especially with a growing world population and you know, finite resources. And so I questioned even further and, and researched even further. I read everything I could get my hands on and started to come across ideas like industrial symbiosis, biomimicry, performance economy, sharing economy, cradle to cradle design. And you start to think if you get all of these ideas and you kind of bring them together and you look at how you design products and recover the materials and design them to have nothing toxic in, how the products flow through the economy from a performance economy, sharing economy perspective, look at how you design them from a biomimicry perspective, then actually you begin to see the shift from linear to circular. On, in the past 10 years, what have been some of perhaps the, the more, shocking, um, sh more shocking experiences for you uh, that have really renewed or, or confirmed this call for a circular economy? I think they, they came before the circular economy for me on this journey of trying to understand how the economy works, you know, how do we use stuff? How much stuff do we use? How many years of this stuff do we have? And I remember one really, really key moment on that journey when I was uh, visiting a coal-fired power station and I went to the power station to see how energy is made and it was a fascinating experience standing in this 180-foot high burner. The guys were welding the steel pipes that carried the steam that drove the turbines. It was very ha kind of hands-on. And I remember thinking about coal more deeply and the story of coal being a big part of my family. My great-grandfather was a miner. Um, and I remembered him. You know, he was alive until I was 11 years old. And I was thinking about, you know, dates and times and how much coal have we got left. You know, we often hear oil talked about, but not so much coal. And I remember looking at the World Coal Association homepage and there, right in the middle, this was in 2008 or 9, it said, we're not about to run out of coal, we've got about 118 years left. And I remember thinking about that number, thinking, well, you know, that's outside my lifetime, that's still away in the future. But then I did the maths and realised that my great-grandfather had been born exactly 118 years before that year. And I thought, it's nothing. You know, I knew him, he was alive until I was 11 years old. He was my friend and it just makes you connect so strongly with what this stuff that we use and realise we just can't keep using stuff up forever. There has to be a different way. And when people talk about a model that works in the long term or, or say that the, this straight line linear economy can't work in the long term, sometimes that word long term 
it kind of pushes the problem mm. it makes it seem mm. uh, like something we'll have to deal with in a, in a few generations time or even further mm. actually um, a lot of the problems kind are, of now yeah they're yeah, now yeah. or they're or we're talking a number of decades I mean I, I had the other day that we have I can't remember it's precisely it's like 60 years of harvests left yes, because of top, topsoil erosion you know, when I first started learning about resources and how we use them, you know, stuff really. I remember a conversation I had with one of the chief operating officers of one of the biggest European car manufacturers, Renault, at the time. And I remember him saying that in the 12 months prior to our conversation, the cost of raw materials, the metal and plastic that they have to buy to build their cars to survive, had gone up by 500 million euros. Now that's something that they have no control over because they have to buy stuff to make cars, to sell cars, to continue their model is selling is pushing more and more cars through a system and that really shocked me because that was real and that was then and that was a number you know based on resource constraints based on some of the the challenges geographically to get these resources and it was very very real you know if there was a way you could isolate yourself from that you know could that really work let's run through a couple of uh, examples of different products and maybe i'll just get your view on what that would look like in a circular economy mm -hmm. so um plastic we know that um plastic is a huge issue at the moment. People have seen it on Blue Planet, or it's in the news every every day. It seems. What about something like a plastic bottle? If you if we were rethinking that for a circular economy, what would it be like? Well, plastic's a really interesting one because you know we know plastic is a massive problem. We know that 32% of 78 million tons leaks out in the environment. We know that only 2% of 78 million tons actually gets recycled back into plastic of the same quality. So really, from a recycling perspective, we've failed when it comes to plastic packaging massively. Even though it's there's been a lot of uh, efforts in the past Huge in efforts. decades. But I think some of the problem with plastics comes back to that conversation around design and system. You know, we make the most phenomenal plastic packaging that will have multi-layers in it, it'll keep chicken fresh, it'll keep the air out, it'll do many, many things, but that plastic's just designed to do that. And at the end of the life of that piece of plastic, there is nowhere for it to go. It's not designed within a, to fit within a system. And the challenge within a circular economy is to build a system that can actually function. So all plastic that's made, all plastic packaging that's made, is designed to be recyclable somehow, or compostable to fit within the biological cycle, or reusable and then ultimately recycled. So if you design all plastic to fit within that system, then any piece of plastic anywhere in the world will be recovered because it has value, because it has value as a raw material. It does have value, but people perceive it as really cheap, right? So it's, uh, I mean, after a little sachet or that bit of um, thin plastic that coats that chicken. Um, when that's done, it's, it's seen as kind of worthless. So who's mm -hmm. going to bother to um, put the infrastructure in place to, 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 to capture that value? Well, I think part of the problem today is that much of the plastic that's made is not designed to be recycled at all. Some is, absolutely. Some is very well designed to be recycled. But the majority still isn't. You know, those sachets, those thin films, it's just not designed to be recycled. So not only does the infrastructure have to change to make the plastic in a different way, but once the plastic's made in a different way, there's a, then a massive incentive to build the infrastructure to collect it because it's valuable, it has value. It may be small bits, it may be complex. As some parts may not be plastic at all in the future, but you build a system to work. So any plastic that's produced from a packaging perspective is designed to be recyclable. Um, if it's not plastic, it's designed to be compostable, so it enters the biosphere and is ultimately never waste, or it's something which is reusable. Well, talk to us about that because recycling it's just one part of the, the circular economy. There are other ways to redesign uh, products and, and services and systems. 
um, beyond beyond that, why would you move to reusing something where rather than recycling, which is um, very uh, more maybe easier or more common practice? Um, I'd say that there are many many elements that can be reused. You know, we in this country we had reusable milk bottles. If you look in Asia, much of the water that's sold is sold in completely reusable big jugs, like massive jugs. That's common practice, and that's actually a very large proportion of the you know the Asian water um, uh, system. You know, when you when you buy bottled water, it's it's not you know an individual bottle like we're used to. It's it's a it's a big jug. Um, so that reusable element is already out there in the world more in some markets than others. But sometimes it makes sense to continue to use a piece of um, a, a bottle or a, a piece of packaging, but ultimately you then need to work out where that sits, because it's not just that it's reusable, you need that to ultimately be recyclable, but it may be aluminium, it may be glass, it may be plastic, not necessarily all recyclable plastic. The recyclable element is anything that's made in plastic is then valorized, it then has a value, it's something which is valuable because it's recyclable. And if all plastic is made that like that globally, which is obviously the goal, then every bit of plastic feeds into one bin, it gets recovered and it gets recycled. Uh, what about car? What, what, what would a car look like in a, in a circular economy? When you look at cars today, they're parked the majority of the time. You know, over 90% of the, car, the time, the car is just parked, not being used. And then when it is used, the majority of the time, it's got one or two people in it. So it's actually really ineffective when you look at, and it's inefficient when you look at the amount of material, the amount of cost for that car, and it just sits either parked at work or parked at home or parked at the shops. So within a circular economy, of course, you would design the car so you can remanufacture it, so you can disassemble it, so you could recover the materials. But we probably wouldn't own it. We'd probably have access to it somehow, either leasing it or you would pay per mile or you know, like so Zipcar or Streetcar. There are so many examples now particularly in cities where more and more people are living, whereby you have access to this car. And once the car isn't yours and you don't physically buy it, then almost the manufacturers incentivized to build a slightly different car because they don't want to build it as cheaply as possible to sell because they only make money when they sell another car. They want to make a car that's actually that works, that's remanufacturable, that they can recover the materials from because they're probably leasing that into a system. They will get that back. They will want to be able to get as much value out of that for the second cycle or the third cycle as possible. Next on my list of things to redesign, what about something completely different to what we've spoken about so far? What about a sandwich? A sandwich. How, what, what's a circular sandwich like? And don't say a bagel. <laughs> <laughs> I think when it comes to food, you know, just go back to basic principles. We have, you know, the nat natural systems have regenerated forever. You know, we have traditionally put materials back onto farmland to fertilise farmland, you know, maybe 200, 300 years ago. With the Industrial Revolution and this, this kind of speeding up the system of production, we've used many chemical fertilisers, we've not taken the biological Which we material. we have needed to do, right, to feed we have a to massive population. To feed a massive population, but the way we've done that is to extract them all, to put it on the land, which has actually degraded the land in the majority of cases, and, and that speeded up production, but you need more and more fertiliser to put on more and more fields, and you need more and more water because the biomass isn't there. So actually, although it's, it's feeding more, it's a kind of false feeding more because ultimately in you know, a thousand years we can't run in the same way. So what we're looking at with the circular economy and your sandwich is how do you make that sandwich so that the land that the, the, the corn is grown on to make the flour, that land is, re is regenerated, so it's regenerative agriculture. There's biomass going onto that land, there's biological fertilizer going onto that land to grow the corn to be able to recover the, 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 um, the seeds, to make the flour, to make the sandwich. And the salad in that sandwich may come from the periphery of a city where all that human waste, all that food waste, which we pile into cities because 
you know, more people than ever, over half the population of the world now live in cities, that biological material is concentrated in cities and absolutely not valorised. Now in the past... It's a, waste. it's a problem now. It, it's a problem, but it's also a wasted, valuable material which would be far better off growing things and rebuilding natural capital than, than becoming a kind of financial problem because it's not wanted within the centre of a city. So, so actually, how do you make that circular sandwich? You have to go right back to how you grow everything and how you then recover the waste from that sandwich, which ultimately would be human waste, um, or maybe the crusts that you don't yeah, eat and waste. end up in the food waste. Um, how do you get those back into the system so that system can be truly regenerative and restorative? When you think about that, simple concept moving from a straight line to a circle obviously there's layers of complexity and all sorts of challenges within that but when you start thinking like that you do start to see opportunities everywhere around you whether it's the things that you buy um, electronic products or the homes you live in clothes things like that um, what can be challenging next is what people can actually do mm. so when people say that to you what can I do now that I'm fired up about this circular economy idea, what's your response? It's kind of a two-pronged response, I think, because there is that feeling of, I get circular, how do we make it happen? And circular, you know, as, as the consumer, or as we would say at the foundation, the user, because hopefully we use things and not consume things, we can't change the system. We can try to influence the system with our choices, but the bottom line is that system has to be built differently to enable us to use things and not consume things. At the moment when we buy plastic packaging it's not designed to fit within a cycle or a system, it's designed to keep our chicken fresh and then ultimately it just becomes waste. So the system has to change. So I would say there's a two-pronged approach. One is the system has to change which you can do little about apart from influence it through the second point which is your choices. And then the other element would be in your life, in your job, if you're going to become a designer or a material scientist or a marketeer think how you can sell circular. How can you make circular overtake linear? You know, how would you sell a product of the future? How would you make a material of the future? It's incredibly exciting. Once you see that system to make that product fit within, that material fit within, then you know exactly what you're designing for. So it's about when people say, what can I do? Well, consider you might be in a role where you can actually influence the sorts of products that are made, how they're sold, are the sorts of options that are available to people that buy that particular product. For If people aren't in that role or in that sort of position and they're just thinking about different choices that they could make, are there choices out there at the moment? Sometimes it feels like there are not that many really circular options for the things that we buy or use. I think some things you would not assume as being circular but actually are much more circular than we'd imagine. I mean, think about you know technology, your phone. Your phone, we used to you know, pay per month and you'd have a contract and you would own your phone and then you were offered a new phone, so you'd take up the new phone offer as it was part of the contract and you'd end up with an old phone. What we're seeing more and more of today is an, a phone contract whereby you have that phone every year, but you get a new phone the next year, but the old one goes back. So effectively, you pay slightly less because you're not buying the technology, you're just having the use of it when the next technology comes through you move on to the next one, but that phone goes back into the system. Then it can be disassembled, it can be remanufactured, it maybe go to someone else, but it's, it's in a system, it's in a loop. It's going to go back to someone who knows what to do with it, whereas we don't, you know, we don't know what to do with an old phone. And in, a, in this sort of transition from linear to circular, for people that want to um, contribute genuinely to picking a more circular option, um, 
having the right mindset to spot the ones that are genuinely circular and the ones that just aim to eke out resources, which is, as you've said before, very important, but mm. it doesn't get us to a, a fundamentally different economy. Mm. We need that mindset shift to be able to spot those opportunities. We do, and I think it's, it's, it comes back to your point about using resources or consuming resources. If you're trying to shift from the straight line to the circle, you know, how would you have access to stuff, whatever that may be, without consuming it? You know, can you shift to just using it? That could be a type of packaging that you know can be recyclable or fit back in a system. It could be how you have access to your phone, how you have access to your clothes, how you have access to mobility. You know, do you own a car? Do you lease a car? Do you have Zipcar or Streetcar? Or you know, how does this whole system work? You know, are you actually consuming these materials, or are they continuing to flow within the economy? And ultimately, if we're if there are signals being sent to the people that provide those products and, and services that this is a good way of doing things that not only does it make business sense um, and and saves resources or energy or um, presents a, an economic advantage but its customers are preferring to use mm. those solutions those options then that's surely will build momentum in that direction absolutely I think your point about this being a better system being a better option, being an easier option, often a cheaper option, will just make it happen. I mean, Spotify came along because it worked. It was easy. It was access immediate. You didn't have to physically buy something that was there, the tangible that you hold. It was actually about something that you listened to. It was a piece of data. Um, it just worked. And, and at the same time, it was something that was becoming feasible through other trends like digital technology and mm. um, in the same way that we can do things now that with with circular economy principles that we maybe couldn't have done um, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, the, the, we're at the nexus, to use that word, of the circular economy and technology helping each other. And, you know, I feel personally we have, you know, this incredible technological ability. We seem to be able to do anything, you know, 3D print limbs. We can, um, you know, we can design systems that transfer data all over the world. We feel we can do anything, but almost to what end? You know, what are you trying to build or create with that? And I think what circular economy does is it gives a lens so that that new technology, that new ability can be focused to build a restorative, regenerative system, an economy that works in the long term, that, that is able to separate growth from resources so we can still have growth and prosperity and, and you know, billions of people coming out of poverty, having access to the goods that, that we do in the Western world, but in a different way. And, and it, it channels that innovation and creativity in, in a very tangible way. Next time we're going to look at some of the specifics. We're going to investigate things like repair. We're going to look at remanufacturing, recycling. How does that fit into a circular economy? And what about all the biological stuff, things that aren't metals or plastics, things like food? How do they flow throughout the economy and never become waste? We'll bring in loads of examples. Ellen's got an amazing treasure trove of examples of a circular economy that she's picked up through 10 years working in this space and she'll be sharing them with us in the next conversation so i hope you can join us next time we'll see you then